good morning on this beautiful after Thanksgiving Monday. I'm Pat Lehman in the communication department and I would like to welcome you to what has become a tradition here at Goshen College on the Monday after Thanksgiving. We have a best of the semester speech convo and a number of students who've been either invited by their prof or who have been voted in by their peers in an oral comm class present speeches. If you enjoy listening to speeches, you'll want to be sure to put February 14, 2012 on your calendar. That is the evening of the annual speech contest, the C. Henry Smith Peace Contest here at Goshen College. That occurs in Humble Center and you'll be able to hear additional speeches at that time. Our speakers this morning are first year Abby Deaton. She is a psychology and communication major. She'll be presenting her speech on Facebook addiction. Second will be senior math and physics major Abe Pauls, who will speak on culture and numbers. Then first year physics major Nick Swartz will speak on why you should read a bill before you critique it. Fourth will be second year sociology and Bible and religion major Leanna Teodosio speaking on barefoot running. And our final speaker today will be first year PR major Gretchen Geyer who will speak on taking advantage of it while you have it. Would you welcome our speakers this morning? Eight hundred million people are at risk. In fact, most of the people in this room are at risk. We are at risk at becoming addicted. Addicted to Facebook. Most experts are saying that we can actually become addicted to Facebook. With over 400 million people logging on to Facebook each day, Facebook is one of the most visited websites in the world. You could consider us Facebook users a global community. And as a global community, it's important for us to realize how we can become addicted, how this addiction can affect us and harm us, and finally, how we can see the warning signs that we may be addicted to Facebook. With over 400 million people logging onto Facebook every day, there must be something rewarding about Facebook. There are two benefits to using Facebook. One, it simply makes us feel better. Kevin Wise did a study on the emotional response between social browsing, which is going through news feeds, and social searching, which is checking on profiles. He found that both actually lower our sympathetic nervous system reaction, meaning that we are physiologically less stressed when we're on Facebook. The other thing is that Facebook meets our psychological need for connectedness. Kevin Sheldon did a study showing that feelings of disconnectedness led people to use Facebook as a coping method, while feelings of connectedness then led people to use Facebook more and more often. So we don't just like Facebook, we need Facebook. But how does this need or addiction harm us? Psychologists are urging that they put Internet Addiction Spectrum Disorder in the next DSM-5. 
This means that they actually want to make internet addiction spectrum disorder a real psychological disorder. There are four symptoms of internet addiction spectrum disorder. One, one's excessive use of the internet actually causes one to lose track of time and physiological needs. Two, one feels withdrawal symptoms when they're not on the internet, such as depression, anger, and tension. Three, one develops a tolerance for internet usage, meaning you have to use the internet more and more and more to get the same level of satisfaction. And four, the internet is causing negative life effects, such as fighting, lying, poor achievement, isolation, and fatigue. Believe it or not, there's actually a case study of a 24-year-old woman who went to a medical clinic saying she was addicted to Facebook. They found that after eight months of Facebook usage, she used Facebook five hours a day. She'd stopped most of her activities, stayed at home most of the time, and actually lost her job because she was on Facebook instead of working. But the scariest part of this story is that most of us are not far behind. So if you would like to avoid spending several hours in a dark room with only the blinking red box as your notification friend, here are five warning signs according to CNN that you may be addicted. If you are losing sleep because of Facebook, you may be addicted. If you're spending more than an hour a day, and I know most of you are, you may be addicted. If you're reigniting old flames, or for a younger generation, adding that kid you talked to three times in second grade as a friend on Facebook, you may be addicted. If you're not getting work done, that includes homework, you may be addicted. Or if you're feeling any withdrawal symptoms, I challenge you to go a day without Facebook. If you're feeling tense, angry, nervous, you may be addicted. But where do we draw the line between casual user and total Facebook addict? Well, Facebook should be fun. It should be something you enjoy doing, not something that stresses you out, makes you lose your job, or causes you to not shower. You having these problems? Well, you should cut back. Or you could wait. According to a weekly World News report, Mark Zuckerberg is closing Facebook on March 15, 2012. Zuckerberg is quoted as saying that Facebook is controlling his life, ruining his life, and he wants to quit. If this makes you panicked at all, realize it's not true. But realize if thinking Facebook could shut down at any minute makes you even the little bit nervous, my friend, you may be addicted to Facebook. Imagine trying to talk about the temperature of the air, the size of that screen, or the age of your mother, all without the use of numbers. We often assume that numbers and mathematics forms a type of universal language, something that transcends all cultures and nationalities. Often we also seem to assume that numbers are an innate fact of human consciousness, something hardwired into us from birth. However, research is beginning to show that this is not the case, and that instead, 
Numbers and mathematics are a linguistic and cultural tool we construct in order to understand the world around us. Let me begin with a test. Here are two groups of ducks. What's the difference between the two? While for us the answer to this question is blatantly obvious, for the people of the Pariah tribe and the Brazilian Amazon, this question is literally beyond comprehension. MIT researchers who visited the tribe found that they only have three words for numbers, zero, one, and two. And even these numbers lack any consistent or definite definition. Further tests such as this one indicate that not only do they lack the words for numbers, but they fundamentally lack the concept of numbers. To them, these two images are indistinguishable. Similarly, the nearby Mundukuru tribe has words only up to five and demonstrates a similar inability to perceive numbers. Researchers believe that the simple day-to-day -day lifestyle of someone living in a tribal environment never necessitated the development of a numerical system, so they never created one. Similar behavior has also been seen in a small group of, deaf, of the deaf in Nicaragua. Because they were never taught sign language from an early age, they were forced to create their own system of communication from scratch. As such, the, the vocabulary they developed to, to deal with numbers was extremely limited. And like the pariah and the mundukuru, they similarly show a disability to perceive quantity and number. And most surprisingly, the same behavior has been shown to exist in everyone as infants. Neurological studies performed by scientists who placed babies in brain scanners and then uh, looked at their brains in response to different visual stimuli, such as five fire trucks and then ten fire trucks, showed that infants under the age of two are unable to perceive small changes in quantity. As an example, a baby could perceive a change from 10 to 100 or 6 to 17, but they wouldn't be able to tell a difference from 13 to 15 or 5 to 6. What this seems to show is that from an early age, we are not hardwired to think in terms of the integers, 0, 1, 2, 3, and so on. That's a foreign concept. It's only after years of conditioning and training that we are able to construct the concept of integers in our head. We're more prone to think in terms of a less exact but more intuitive system that resembles the logarithmic scale. Rather than think of numbers as an absolute, they are instead a language, something we construct and develop over time to deal with new concepts. In the same way that we develop new words to deal with new technologies like Googled or Skyping, we also develop new words in mathematics. Some examples may include zero, which didn't exist until about the second millennia BC, the concept of negative one, which wasn't invented until about the year zero, and most recently the concept of I, or imaginary numbers, was not invented until about the 17th century. All of these now are crucial and fundamental in how we perceive mathematics. All these examples have fundamentally changed how we perceive the world of numbers, and now today it is impossible to do something as simple as talk about the temperature outside on a cold day without using such concepts as zero and negative one. What this all seems to show is that how our language and mathematics are structured not only affects how we communicate our ideas with others, but it also has a very deep and very real impact on how we think and see the world. Thank you.
Who here has heard of an unfair act of legislation? Raise your hand. Come on, there's more than that. All right. Now keep your hand raised if you heard about that act from what others told you, whether it be like a newspaper or the TV or um, a teacher or anything like that. Now, who here has actually read that bill for themselves? Being from Phoenix, I'm going to use SB 1070 as an example of this, or how I've heard it being referred to, that racist bill from Arizona. People think that it allows police just to go up to anyone and ask to see the papers on their immigration status, and so it's a huge controversy. People today rely on others to tell them what to think about bills and legislation. Or, in the case of Eric Holder, our Attorney General, just not read the law at all. The administration is on the wrong side of the American people. Have you read the Arizona law? Uh, I have not had a chance to, I've glanced at it, I have not read it. Um, with the it's 10 pages, it's a lot shorter than the uh, health care bill, which was 2,000 pages long. I'll give you my copy of it if you uh, would like to, to have a copy. Uh, even though you haven't read the law, do you have an opinion as to whether it's constitutional? Uh, I have not really, I've not been briefed yet. All right, so we have... He says that he, he has not been briefed yet so that he can avoid looking foolish for having an opinion on something he hasn't read. But the months before that interview, he's had many interviews where he had no problem saying his opinions of it, saying things like it will lead to racial, racial profiling and that the law is an unfortunate one that might lead to harassment. The Attorney General is the head official of legal affairs and is the chief law enforcement officer of the nation. So of course, being so high up, he doesn't have time to read everything and he has teams of advisors that brief him on everything. But how can he be sure that those advisors tell him the whole truth about the bill? By the time we get our information, it could be third or even fourth hand information and just like a, a bad rumor that as it keeps on getting told, just comes farther and farther from the original story. Another example of this is Janet Napolitano, the former governor of Arizona and current Secretary of Homeland Security. In April, she voiced her opinions and the opinions of her organization that she belonged to that they have deep concerns about the constitutionality of the bill. And then she had an interview with John McCain. They're going to be sent or not. Finally, uh, if I might ask, have you uh, had a chance to review the new law that was passed by the state of Arizona? Uh, I have not uh, reviewed it in detail. I certainly know of it, Senator. So you're not prepared to make a judgment on it? Senator, uh, uh, that is uh, not a law. Uh, let me just say this. As you know and, and are well aware, that's not the kind of law I would have signed. And for what reason? So. She hasn't even read it, but she knows it's not the kind of bill she would have signed, even though she really doesn't even know what it says. I've had many discussions about this bill for, with many people from many different states, including Arizona, and I found that many people have very strong feelings about this bill. But none of them could tell me that they had read so much as one line of this actual bill. 
And all this being said, I want to make it abundantly clear that I'm not trying to persuade anyone to be in favor of this bill or against this bill. I just want to persuade you to read a controversial bill for yourself rather than going to some other source to try to tell you what it says. Because most of the time it's going to be biased. What I really want to do is promote intelligent debate. But that can't be done with, unless both sides have the facts. If either Holder or Napolitano had read even the first two paragraphs of the bill, because that's where most of the controversy is over, then they would have been able to tell what's unjust about the bill. Is it really that hard to read two paragraphs? Now, in terms of college students, writing a paper could be used as a metaphor. Your teacher assigns you a paper, and when you start working on it, do you sit down and you just start writing about anything when you know you really don't know anything about the topic? No, you, you go out and you do some research, you find some concrete evidence to back up your argument. So wouldn't it stand to reason that if you're gonna critique a bill, that you would at the very least know what the actual bill says? Many people believe they don't have to read the bill, but they can go to some trusted sources to sum it up. And this works great if you can find a source that's completely unbiased. And I wanted to see um, what kind of information people would get from these trusted sources. So I typed in SB 1070 into Google, and I skipped over that nice PDF file of the actual bill, and I found an article in the New York Times, a very prestigious world newspaper. Um, the article by Randall C. Archibald stated this bill would make, a make the failure to carry immigration documents a crime and give the police broad power to detain anyone suspected of being in the country illegally. Half of this is true, half is a lie, but it might as well all be a lie because they don't even mention the entire sentence that's in the bill. The bill reads, for any lawful stop, detention, or arrest made by a law enforcement official where reasonable suspicion exists that the person is an alien and is unlawfully present in the United States, a reasonable attempt shall be made when practicable to determine the immigration status of the person. They seem to miss the fact that the person has to be arrested because they broke some other law before this bill even has a chance of affecting them. This also puts to rest President Obama's fears as well when he said, um, if you take your kids out for ice cream without your papers, you could be harassed. Well, unless they, on the way to the ice cream, they mug someone and the police catch them, or at least they're robbing the ice cream stand, then there's not really any chance of that. Also from Fast Facts on Arizona's immigration crackdown, they insist, Legal experts maintain that the law will result in racial profiling, as it does not prohibit police officers from relying on race or ethnicity in deciding who to investigate. And this is the sentence that they were referring to. A law enforcement official or agency of the state or a county, city, town, or other political subdivision of the state may not consider race, color, or national origin in implementing the requirements of this subsection. These legal experts haven't even read the second paragraph of the bill. Uh, an article in Los Angeles Times by Michael Muskell is titled, Poll Finds Just 13% of People Approve of Congress. 
And there are many more articles and Gallup polls taken about the approval of Congress, and they're all generally very low, somewhere around 20% approval, meaning that somewhere around 80% of the nation doesn't like what Congress is doing. But term after the term, the, the same people are being reelected. It seems like we want a legislature that we don't like and that doesn't listen to us. Not reading bills that our congressmen pass leads to voting just being about advertisements and name recognition and not even about the congressman's actual ideals. Can you all imagine a Congress that actually listens to the people they represent rather than their own party? I can't. But I think the first step towards that is to have voters understand the bills that their congressmen are voting on, rather than getting their information secondhand. We, as the new, newest voting generation, cannot leave it up to legal experts to tell us what these bills are and what Congress is up to. If we wish to have any effect on this nation, or even just to not look foolish for having misinformed views, we need to gather our own real information and make judgments and have debates that are based on real facts. So next time you're talking with someone and they, they have some strong views about a piece of legislation, then ask them if they have actually read any of the bill themselves and encourage them that before they make criticisms to at least know the facts behind what they're critiquing. Thank you. The human foot has 26 bones, 33 joints, 20 muscles, and hundreds of sensory receptors, ligaments, and tendons. The purpose of my speech today is to inform you about a rediscovered running technology, your bare feet. I'll cover in my speech a brief background of the barefoot running movement, the form that is adopted while barefoot running, and a little bit about barefoot running shoes or minimalist shoes. So I'll start with talking about the movement. The buzz began to be picked up in the media around 2004, and it mostly centered around the controversy of people running barefoot, and is it good for you? Uh, how much cushion is too much, not enough? Um, and so there's, there's still a lot of controversy in the news, and it was thought that it was just gonna start as a fad and it would fizzle out. And while there are a relatively small sect of barefoot runners today, it, this movement has been gaining momentum over the past several years. I myself am a barefoot runner. I just started running barefoot this fall after researching for about a year, the pros, the cons, reading into the controversy, and I love it. So secondly, I'll talk to you a little bit about the barefoot running form. It's not just about what you wear on your feet or the lack thereof for that matter. It's about the biomechanics. Christopher McDougall is an author, and he's kind of the head behind this barefoot running movement, and he's written some barefoot running books. He was featured in the New York Times article titled, Wiggling Their Toes at the Shoe Giants. And his study has been on the Terra Mujera indigenous people of Mexico. Uh, he was fascinated at their ability to run over 100 miles at one time, 
completely barefoot over really rugged terrain. And they also um, sometimes just wear these really thin-soled sandals called haraches, made out of like a tire. They cut it out of a tire and use a leather strap. So he was looking at how these people are able to run these great distances and well into their geriatric years. So he discovered that it's about the method, the biomechanics, how you land, how you push off. So in a typical running shoe, you have the thickest part at the heel. It has a lot of cushion, which promotes you to land on the heel with a great amount of force. So you make contact with the ground and the rest of your foot rocks and you push off. But that causes a lot of impact to go up through your heel and passes up to your joints and your back. However, when you're running completely barefoot or in a minimalist shoe, it hurts really badly to land on your heel. And uh, so it, you land more on the forefoot of your, or the midfoot, and you'll come down, you might touch the ground, but it's more of a springing action. If you think about jogging in place, that's what it looks like. So while we're talking about it, I'll introduce you finally to uh, minimalist shoes. These are my running shoes. They're Vibram Five Fingers. They have individual toes. Really flexible, lightweight. This is 4.8 ounces. Um, it gives you all the benefits of running barefoot except for this thin sole, which is four millimeters at the thickest point where you need it on the forefoot and three millimeters on the inside. And that's about the thickness of two pennies put together. According to the New York Times article, The Once and Future Way to Run, Barefoot style shoes are now a $1.7 billion industry. So Vibram Five Fingers is a really well-known brand, but other big companies are picking up this minimalist or barefoot approach to running, including Nike with their Nike Freeze and Brooks with the Brook Pure Project. So in conclusion, if you are a runner, an athlete of any kind, or at the very least, someone who has feet and uses them to get around every once in a while. I hope that you've enjoyed learning about the barefoot running movement, the form that's adopted, and some minimalist shoes. Thank you. Did you know that Americans use 70 million plastic water bottles every day? And only one-sixth of them are recycled. That's according to nationalenvironment.com. On average, a Goshen College student uses eight to nine pieces of paper every day. And when surveyed, nine out of 10 agreed that they throw away at least half of that paper. And globally, we use one million plastic bags every minute and only 1% of those are recycled. So let's be honest, I want you to raise your hand. Who admits to throwing away at least one of these items every day? I thought so. After we've already chosen to not reduce and reuse the large amounts of items that we use every day, why do we also choose to, not, to add to the gigantic landfills instead of recycling? Even though Goshen College students and staff have put into place a great recycling program, we need to take better advantage of it. I started a recycling program at my church, and I find it very discouraging when I continue to see people throw items that could be recycled into the trash. I walked into 10 different rooms, and in each of the 10 trash cans, I 
found items that could have been recycled. We need to take action. I agree fully with a quote from the great singer Sam Cooke. It's been a long time coming, but I know a change will come. Even when I was writing this speech, I was actually working at the rec center, and a coach came up to me with three large cardboard boxes in their hand, and they asked me if there's a large trash can around that they could throw them away in. I was so discouraged, but I told her that I would just take them and I would recycle them back in our dorm, and that's just what I did. If we pave the way as an eco-conscious student body, we are sure to make a difference in the lives of many different people. While here at Goshen College, we should take advantage of the recycling program that's in place. We'll contribute to the, healthy, the healthiness of our environment, as well as aid in building cool new products, all while building a lifelong habit to recycle. Many people are aware of the large amounts of CO2 that are released into the atmosphere when trash is burned or decomposes in a landfill. The carbon dioxide breaks down the ozone layer, which allows harmful rays from the sun to penetrate our Earth. Quite obviously, the less we recycle, the more that ends up in these landfills. But what people often don't know is that biodegradable products, which are typically seen as green products, also release a very harmful um, greenhouse gas. Wayne Perry of Live Science said that because biodegradable products decompose at such a rapid rate, they release a large amount of the greenhouse gas methane. Methane stays in the air for a much shorter time than CO2, but it traps the heat at 21 times the rate that CO2 does, warming our environment, which is becoming increasingly dangerous. Though we think we might be going green by using these biodegradable products, really, the best solution would be to recycle. Some people may not agree with the harmful consequences um, not, that not recycling has on our Earth, or think it's a little too difficult to recycle. But one of the positives that people often don't realize is how many cool new products are created from recycled materials. Who enjoys going out on a cold winter day, which I'm sure there will be many to come, of lots of snow on the ground, snow falling from the sky, without a warm winter jacket on? I didn't think you would. According to cleanair.com, one of the ways that jackets are often insulated are by using recycled plastic bags. Imagine how many more warm winter jackets we could create if we would just recycle a few more of the one million plastic bags we use every minute. The next time you go out on a cold winter day, I bet you might just think twice about what you put in the recycling versus what you put in the trash. If we don't take advantage of Goshen College's recycling, when will we ever decide that it's important? If we do take advantage of it, we will contribute to a cleaner environment, help create cool new products, all while creating a lifelong habit to recycle. As students of Goshen College, we are encouraged to be global citizens, to take care of our environment, as well as to know how other issues or other countries are dealing with the same issues that we have. The U.S. is quite far behind in our recycling efforts. According to the BBC article, Recycle Around the World, the average European country recycles 30% of their recyclable products. Switzerland recycles a massive 80%, while the U.S. only recycles about 17%. Being a college student, we all like to do something that's easy every once in a while, right? Recycling is just that. Recycling containers are found at the end of every KMY dorm, as well as being available in the student apartments, CULP, and the on-campus housing. I have heard from a few complaints from the upperclassmen that it takes a lot more responsibility to take the recycling all the way out to the recycle bins, 
but I guess that just comes with being older. We just have more responsibilities. Recycling is for those who like to, to see the beauty of the earth maintained, love staying warm during the winter, or likes, what doing, likes to do what's easy. The next time that I'm finished with a plastic bag, plastic water bottle, or scrap piece of paper, I'll choose to make use of Goshen College Recycling and recycle it. Will you? Will you choose to recycle?